Hey, everybody out there. Welcome to the Sopranos podcast. Today, episode 10, multiple choice. You know, Tony, it's a multiple choice thing with you. I don't know if you're old-fashioned, paranoid, or just a fucking asshole. That's a quote by Carmela Soprano in episode 10 of season 1 of The Sopranos, entitled, A Hit is a Hit. This episode is written by Joe Basso and Frank Renzulli, and it's directed by Matthew Penn. All right, here we are, guys. A hit is a hit. This a is hit a, is a hit. This is an interesting milestone in season one. We're going to talk about it for several reasons. Uh, it's a um, milestone, all right. <laughs> basically, uh, Adriana is venturing out into the music business. Tony is venturing out with some of his more white-collar, straight-laced uh, Italians, the Wonder Bread Wops, as he refers to them. And uh, Massive Genius, a gangster rapper, is looking for reparations from Hesh. I want to start off this discussion by just acknowledging something, that this episode, and I liked it, and I'm, we're going to get to how some of you at the table here feel, <laughs> but this episode, generally, as far as the Soprano fandom is concerned, sits at the bottom of favorite lists. Now, we, I think we all agree that the best episode of the, the worst episode of the Sopranos is better than 90% of everything else on television. Absolutely. But... As far as, like, most people's least favorite episodes, it's this one and a couple others. So, with that said, I'm going to quote Massive Genius here. I think this episode, a lot of people didn't like it, but I think it's just misunderstood. Let's go around the table. Paul, hit as a hit. First reactions. I don't know if you should have picked Godfather 3 as the misunderstood piece of <laughs> masterful art. Well, I didn't. Massive Genius did. That's true. That's fair. This episode is very funny. It's interesting in terms of character. I'd say two in particular. I think this is actually an important episode for Chris. I think it's a growing up storyline in the gangster world for him in many important ways. And a delight in watching this episode, unequivocal, is watching Jerry Adler play Hesh <laughs> and watching what they do with him in terms of the writing and developing that character. This is an episode that I will say, not that I didn't enjoy... I did watch with a sort of, shall we say, like a soft focus. I sort of leaned back. I laughed a lot, for sure. But It's there is... very funny. Yes. Again, we, we, we've talked about it several times this season. Frank Renzulli co-wrote this, and all of his episodes are just loaded with a lot of humor. Yes, and there are a ton of funny moments. This episode, to me, I'm going to throw this up the flagpole and see who salutes it. This episode is like The Great Gatsby for Gavones. There is Gatsby imagery all over this motherfucker. It's way too loose to actually be a Gatsby story. The closest that you come is probably going to a party in Inglewood Cliffs. But the multiple choice thing refers to branching out. And branching out into these groups that are usually pretty established, high social order. There's a fun quality to it. You're going to these parties. You're going to a big party at a mansion where the Hamptons version of which is frequented by Alec Baldwin. So we have status there. Um, like Gatsby, there's getting into these friendships with intriguing but also possibly dangerous people. Massive G changed his name to something with a G. and I mean, talk about marketing. First name Massive, last name Genius. The difference is that Gatsby is a tragedy, and this is funny because these characters are so dim. That Not like dumb in the traditional sense, like I know there's that, but specifically... They get into these worlds and they don't understand them and often don't appreciate the qualities that make them hum. Uh, Hesh is no angel. 
But what he impresses upon Chris in this episode, very importantly, is that even if you're going to play a dirty game, you have to understand the dynamics, or you're not going to be a player at all. You're going to be a pathetic schlepper. Mm. So that's how this episode plays out to me, and I think because of some of that imagery, I enjoyed it, in spite of the fact that, again, something in it did dip back. It is surrounded by remarkably tense and powerful episodes and here the in spite of the murder that opens the episode everything else sort of fans out in a much more playful light tone so that's where i am with it i don't like the episode nearly as much as you guys i think um it is honestly inspiring to me that we can compare this to the godfather 3 or the great gatsby and have a good conversation about (laughs) it but the fact of the matter is i don't think the episode was very good um i think it's still as chris uh introduced uh, the episode with you know uh so much better than most television that happens that we even get to see. Uh, but, uh, yeah, no, the, the episode's not my favorite. I think it's very low stakes. I think the comedy is fun. It's fine. You know, it's an enjoyable episode. But, yeah, again, standing between just two gigantic episodes coming off the heels of Boca, this is not really where I wanted to go as a viewer. And I was willing to entertain the journey because these writers are so smart and these characters are so fascinating to watch. But... My interest and my fascination really waned throughout the episode. It was the first time this season that I did the unthinkable. I looked at my watch (laughs) to see how much longer I had on the episode before it would finally wrap up. It kind of reminded me in a way of like an after-school special. It was like, okay, it's a single-topic episode. We're not going to really get anything about the main storyline. We're not going to come back to Tony and Junior uh, and the power struggle in the family. It is just... An interesting parallel story between Tony trying to be accepted by these golf club white bread fuckers and Chris trying to see beyond himself and his meager life as a low-level gangster into trying to embrace something, uh, an image that is um, a bigger or better version of himself involved in the arts. Let me ask you a question, Jordan. So I hear what you're saying, and I want to just kind of ask for a clarification on one thing. To me... One of the cool things about The Sopranos is that occasionally we are going to veer off in a very unexpected direction. This is something sure. the series does multiple times. And to be fair, whether this is, you know, whether this addresses the issue or not, those episodes generally are more criticized than the others. These episodes where The Sopranos kind of veers off into some other direction and explores something that maybe was just interesting to writers or whatever. Like, obviously... Uh, the people involved in this show love music, and so they're exploring the world of music in this episode. But my question to you is, knowing that that this is going to be something that The Sopranos does going forward, is these random episodes that kind of veer off into an unexpected direction and don't really touch the quote-unquote main plot, does this not work for you because of its positioning in the season and the high stakes that are kind of sandwiched in the episodes prior and the episode after? Or does it not work in and of itself? It, no, it, it works as a self-contained episode. I just don't really care for it. Like, I don't find mm-hmm. it that interesting. I'm not criticizing it because I don't think it's a functional episode. I think it serves the series. Mm-hmm. It certainly serves to deepen the characters. We certainly know more about Tony and Christopher and Adriana and their world and Hesh uh, after this episode. But it kind of doesn't matter to me. I don't know. I kind of came away from this episode like couldn't wait to immediately just watch the next one just to get something Mm. i don't feel like i was served a meal with this episode this was like an aperitif this was not uh something that was substantial enough for me to come away with the same sense of catharsis that i usually have after watching a sopranos episode what i'm saying is if i had waited all week for a hit as a hit i would have been disappointed interesting i can speak to this point i think because though i 
believe I enjoyed the episode a bit more than you, Jordan. There is something here, actually very deliberately in the writing, where the two main, the A and the B story, I'd say are Chris and Tony branching out, respectively. And both stories take us out of the gangster world. Yeah. They're trying to do something different. And those episodes, avoiding spoilers, will come in for criticism. Because as inventive and creative as The Sopranos is, and I always, I tend to love that, people do want to see these North Jersey guys deal with life. They want to see them deal with the work-life balance. They want to see them deal with the changing world. And some of these episodes, as you say, that take these little side trips, they can be effective. They're not always as effective, I don't think. So uh, while I enjoyed this episode, I do understand what Jordan is saying and where some of the criticism comes from, because it's pulling the characters out of a comfort zone and to a degree is pulling us out of a comfort zone and putting us in these places that also deliberately, I think, turn out to be disappointing. Mm. Tony is intrigued, a little reticent about hanging out with the manazers, yeah. as he calls them. They turn out to be tedious. Oh yeah, they're awful. So they're awful. We're going to talk about that. So yeah, very interesting episode here for 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 many reasons. I mean, even just this discussion of whether or not what the function of this in the series and at this point in the season, the show is is an interesting discussion. But let's let's dig in where we can here and and try to get to the bottom of this thing. I, I, I guess the A plot here would be the massive genius storyline and uh, Chris and Adriana, their kind of journey through this. So um, we start the episode off here with this murder, which is an interesting plug-in to, some, to, to the general theme of the episode to me, because while I found myself feeling sorry for Tony later in the episode that he was kind of used uh, as a dancing bear, uh, the imagery he gives Melfi, we're reminded in this opening scene with the murder here that the mob is the most closed club on the planet. They kill this guy for encroaching their territory and trying to break into their world. So keep. I think that's just an interesting way for the show to remind us that, you know, while it's you feel bad for Tony, these guys are brutal killers and the most closed shop on planet Earth. But we go from that into Chris's uh, scene here at this burger joint. He's making several racist remarks after seeing Rent, he's, which he disparages as well. Uh, so what do we think of the beginning here, the first scene with Chris and Massive Genius, and and how this starts to play out? I have to say, I think this scene is perfect. Um, first of all, spoiler alert, and I apologize in advance if some of my comments on this episode are not like a safe space, but I love inappropriate jokes. I agree with the late Christopher Hitchens, it's not really a joke unless it's at somebody's expense. <laughs> so I love these jokes, even as it's clear that Chris is, I think, in this sequence and other sequences, still exhibiting signs of depression. They're different, It's but it's the same question of emotional lability. He just had a good day, which included, as you say, murdering a guy and making a big score. He took his girlfriend out to dinner at Le Cirque. They went to see Rent. They had good seats. Everybody's status is right where you'd want it. He can't abide waiting for a burger in this place and then in spite of what the cop says that we know why he's bold still an unforced error seems a stupid move mm. to be going into this burger joint and saying all this crap of oh, course I mean, it, if it were if it were 2020 chris would be viral you know? right. <laughs> um, here it ends up with opportunity uh what's striking about the scene to me we're really digging into adriana 
for the first time, I think. And when he disparages Rent, she doesn't care. Yeah. She wasn't paying, she's humming the scenery. She was paying attention to where their seats were. Well, that's a, that's an important note in this episode, too, is that this is the most we get of Christopher and Adriana, a relationship that is going to be um, central to the action of the show at this point and going forward. So that's one thing I really took away, too, is we really get to see how these two interact, what their relationship is like. We see, I think, a lot of their dynamics, as well as what will become complications in the episode. After Adriana is sort of swooning at, I think, the style of the night that they had, I'm, I'm embarrassed to be hungry again, she mentioned something about, like, Le Cirque and would it be tough to run a restaurant? So that's the level of dedication and attention to detail that these people have in the interest that they have in branching out. So it's gonna they're going to hit a wall. Um, massive genius walks up to Chris, and I think he says, bold men make bold statements. And he uses this line that is very deliberate. He says, your woman looks embarrassed. And the question of the sexual tension and the dynamic between these three, and I think the fact that Chris sees Adriana, I think he does love her, but mostly as an extension of himself, will, of course, complicate and characterize where that story goes. So I remember really enjoying the scene. It's very funny, but it sets everything up when... One of Massive, the, a guy from Massive's entourage says, hey, Donnie Brasco. Yeah. That line is really <laughs> funny. So that's what, uh, the, the scene perfectly sets up, I think, all the forewords of the story and where it will go. Yeah, this whole episode is kind of um, following this idea of a fish out of water, right? Uh, as soon as you see Chris and Adriana walk into the burger basket, they're, they're completely out of place. They're the yeah. only white folks that are in there. It's clearly like a sort of a black neighborhood establishment. Uh, it's fast food. At the same time, it's also just food. It, it should just be a normal encounter. Just sometimes you have to wait for your food. Mm. And Chris seems to be just beyond waiting. We've already seen what happens when you make Chris Maltesanti wait too long <laughs> for yeah. some food. Um, but he's, you know, he's not out to be disrespected tonight. Uh, he gets, you know, waved forward eventually. This encounter ends so strangely. Um, I think maybe Christopher and Adriana feel marked for some kind of specialness. You know, they've been propositioned by Massive Genius. Uh, you know, he's invited them to this this mansion party in the Englewood Cliffs, right? This is a, a big deal for them. Chris and Adriana are great characters, not only because they're just written so well, but because they represent a, a faction that's not really represented in the show otherwise. These are two people in their 20s trying to make it, trying to figure out who they are, trying to figure out how far they can get this whole gangster thing to go for themselves. Chris has a frustrated uh, line. He says this to, to Adriana when they get back from the party. It's one he of says, my favorite scenes in the episode. Actually. Yeah, he says, that guy's a gangsta. I'm a gangster, right? Yeah. Um, Junior with his moldy old sweaters, and he's a boss. <laughs> right, exactly. And he's he's comparing these two cultures of the black gangsta culture versus the Italian-American gangster culture. And unfortunately, he kind of splits them apart without really being able to see the similarity that mm. is there between the two. This episode contains some really rich pastiches of these marginalized groups coming together and how they've had to eke by the white folks. Okay, uh, In our discussion here, these groups are not white. Italians uh, versus how whites are depicted in this episode are not white. Jews and how they're depicted in this episode are not white. And blacks are not white. Uh, but they've had to kind of get around the white problem of exclusion, of oppression, to try to see how they can succeed in some way. Let's follow up on that, because that, that that's interesting. And to me, that is where this episode really is finds its meat 
for me because it's such an interesting topic for them to explore, especially this early in their run. Because the Italians, as you say, Jordan, they don't really fit into either group. Melfi, uh, Cusamano's Italian, but he's what Tony's dad Madagan. Was. Yeah, Madagan, a Wonder Bread Wop, eats Sunday gravy out of a jar. Great imagery, great, great dialogue there. But they don't really plug in, and even Melfi... I, I love that moment when Melfi sticks up for the Murano glass. Mm-hmm. Like she, she, she kind of feels she's made a lot of money, but her family is much more that blue collar, yeah. honest. You know, the to we the twenty million. They, uh, mm-hmm. Her family toasts a few episodes back, so she kind of recognizes with that that blue collar sensibility that the mob guys have, despite their financial success. Uh, so it's just yeah, I I find it interesting that we're like kind of dancing in these other cultures, and Chris is out of place with the 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 black gangster rap thing and tony is out of place at the other kind yeah, of the, polar the country extreme, club the, golf the, country club, club, yeah. the country club whites as uh, dave Chappelle would call them <laughs> uh, so it's like it is interesting territory to explore and and um what what do we make of this dynamic and this idea of italian identity kind of in the midst of these two extremes i like what both of you said on it one of the things that was a little hmm Something about this episode, though, again, I I think I enjoyed it more than Jordan. I was struck by how frustrated I was with almost all of these characters. Because as I understand branching out and its discontents, and I understand a search for identity. But part of what is happening is they're looking at these other, either entirely separate cultures or subcultures, and and seeing what they can do to get into them. And, of course, not understanding many things about them. But what struck me is that these characters don't understand their own culture. Mm. So I think they're kind of off on the wrong foot can to you, begin Can with. you expand on that? Sure. One example is Tony at the beginning wants to get into, he's interested, he's a little reticent, but hanging out with these, the country club whites. Then, interestingly, we show that world not from Tony's perspective going in, but from Melfi's attending a dinner party which is a great scene. And as you said, Chris, Melfi he earned such huge points for me mm. with the I like Murano Glass thing. It wouldn't have to be about Murano Glass. I just wanted to see Jeannie Cusimano stop talking <laughs> with her airy snobbery. Oh, these guys are such annoying pricks. Yeah, they're perfectly cast. All these actors are yes. hysterical. Jean... What's that due to property value? Having <laughs> a gangster on the block. Jeannie Cusimano's oh, line about Murano Glass is that it's Goomba. Essentially, it's an underclass Italian thing. Again... I don't know how much the particulars mattered to me. It was her attitude that I didn't like. Murano Glass is from Venice and comes out of the period of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance when Venice led the world not only in its artisanal work, but in its culture, in its government, which was more democratic than anything in France or England at the time. And these yuppies in a cul-de-sac in North Caldwell are like, it's not good enough for us. So I was like, you know what? Fuck you. That was my attitude for that. (laughs) In a not-so-dissimilar way, Tony is reflecting on them. What he says about Cusimano is he's a metagon. Wonder Bread Wop, he eats his Sunday gravy out of a jar. Nobody in Italy calls it gravy. Yeah. Um, so these characters are operating from a point of mostly ignorance and projecting onto each other what they think makes sense. 
Well, and it's no accident that in an episode about projecting what you think something is, that there's, again, so many mob movie references. Godfather Part 3. Casino. Casino. Um, the, the line, could this be the end of Rico, uh, comes from... Um, Little Caesar. Little Caesar, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, it's again, it's peppered in all over. You know, Cusimano's behavior... Dr. Cusimano, played wonderfully by Robert Lapone. I think this is the first time... We see uh, Dr. Cusimano, but he, he has been mentioned before as Tony Soprano's family physician and also next door neighbor. Uh, he plays this role so well, so funny. And, uh, you know, talking with the cigar and, and just his smug smile talking about Casino. And uh, it's it's all very funny. Jordan, any thoughts on this? I just want to mention one moment before I forget it. Um, Melfi, kind of disgusted with their conversation and their behavior, excuses herself to the restroom. She doesn't actually have to go. She just wants a break. And she realizes she's next to Tony's house. And there's this um, almost sort of, I don't want to say romantic, but intriguing moment where she actually oh, gets up intimate. onto the toilet because she wants to see his house. Mm. It wasn't enough to her to just know that, like, oh, yeah, he happens to live next door. Like, she really deliberately looks at it. And then she cares enough to mention it later. Uh, why does she mention it later? It's such a fascinating moment in, a fascinating moment in the episode. I was in your neighborhood last night. Uh, you saw my house. And they let that hang there. They let it hang. It's it's actually a, a beautiful moment. It's a Tony, moment I really enjoyed. Tony, I think, is kind of shocked by how intimate a statement that is. Like, yeah. That she would not only do that, but it, it's sort of like the subtext there is, you saw my house, you wanted to see my house. Mm-hmm. So I think that kind of... It very subtly deepens their relationship in an interesting it, way. It does, and I, I just did want to mention it because it's a moment I really like in an Absolutely. episode that I don't necessarily uh, love. Um, no, getting back to the, the topic at hand, you know, the country club whites, they participate in their own kind of crime, right? So the, uh, the stock market is mentioned uh, several times throughout the episode. The score they have made from the Colombian, right, the cash that they now suddenly have in hand... Tony wants to invest it in an IPO, right? He wants to try to go legit with this little bit of money. Mm. He hears them talking about uh, a stock called Dexplex just around the grill, and he's trying to just kind of listen in on it, and they don't. Mm. There's an awkward hanging pause where they don't give him any more information about Dexplex. Carmela is involved in a similar conversation back at the patio table where the ladies are talking about American biotics yeah. uh, and how they're about to develop, a, very notably, an impotence pill that has no side effect. <laughs> um, and uh, they're going to invest in it. And Carmela is the one that ultimately takes this tip and is going to invest in that stock. But this is their hustle. And this is the show sort of not so subtly telling us, like, you know what? Everybody's involved in this kind of a, a, a criminal enterprise, okay? It's not just the Italians that are going around uh, shaking people down for the purposes of, you know, usury and whatever else. Uh, but it's, it's also, it's at the top. The country club whites are involved in the stock market, basically doing insider training next to their, next to their barbecue grills, being like, oh, hey, this information you're not supposed to have, let me give this to you and, and how you can make a whole bunch of money off of other people suffering, by the way. Yeah. And it's also just kind of telling of their personal character in that they immediately close down when Tony wants kind of an inkling and wants oh, to yeah. feel included, mm -hmm. yet they demand every secret of him. You know what I mean? Like asking mm -hmm. about the making ceremony and that, that scene at the golf course, which I, is just awful. Yeah, it's a shame. When, when they're just prodding him and yeah. asking if he, you know, and to the point where Tony finally realizes the jig is up with these guys. Uh, he, there, you can kind of see the moment when he decides, 
you know what, fuck these guys. Let me let me fuck with them and get as well, much entertainment out of them. That ends up becoming the bungalow bar monologue, which actually, despite this episode not being great, that's an infamous line. That oh, yeah. whole bungalow bar thing is a is a, a gem. Yeah, you know he rang that bell? The whole, the whole way, way home. home. <laughs> yeah, it's a it is a great scene. It's a great ending. But even the I sadly, as funny as that is, I think the wind is taken out of it because when he goes to Melfi, we realize it's contextualized how that was a tough moment for him and as Jordan mentioned, there's the intimacy of when Melfi gingerly balanced herself on the toilet seat and heard the scream and all that, and then mentions it. I'm sure we'll come back to that. But then also, I think there's also an intimacy in what Tony then reveals about Jimmy Smash and about the golf scene because it's so intimate and it just felt like, and I thought you could see in Melfi's reaction how Her- achingly normal Tony's pain in that moment is. She acts the shit out of that scene. I actually made a note of it. For for a scene where Tony does most of the talking, uh, Melfi, you can just sense her sadness for him there. She feels bad for him, not only on like kind of a surface level, but I think for a brief moment, Melfi is feeling like, feeling how kind of stuck Tony is in his current trajectory, that this guy can't branch out. A note on performance. Uh, I've often heard great acting teachers say that the best actors are good listeners. Mm. James Gandolfini and Lorraine Bracco are unbelievable, yeah, passively unbelievable in <laughs> scenes where they don't have the dialogue necessarily. Yeah, they're, they're the listening are, capacity is unreal. The season one therapy scenes are just a fire. They're every every one of them are good, even in episodes that may not necessarily be as sizzling or crackling as other episodes. Uh, the, their scenes always home run out of the park. Much like uh, James Gandolfini and Edie Falco, I feel. There's, oh, you uh, can, of course. I Taking would, nothing away from Edie Falco. She's yeah, incredible. I would watch a show where it was just Tony Carmella scenes. And mm-hmm. I could be, it. yeah, I could be venturing out too far here. I'd love to hear what you guys think on it. But again, relating it to some previous episodes, we've seen more and more over the season, I think Melfi starting to struggle with the question of treating Tony, some of its pitfalls, perhaps some of its dangers ethical quandaries, her ambivalence about it. I thought in this episode, in subtle ways, I sensed some vindication in Melfi taking this professional step in saying, no, I want to treat this guy. Mm. Because A, the scene with the Kuzumanos put her back up with their point of view, and then I think what Tony ultimately shares shows her something that she hadn't seen before. Mm. Yeah. I, I agree with that fully, Paul. I, I, mm-hmm. I, this is a deceptively important episode for Tony and Melfi. There's, they just kind of deepen the mutual sympathy between them. It just shows where, with all this clash of culture going on in this episode, that Melfi and Tony, in many ways, are cut from the same cloth, despite having totally different moral codes obviously. Let's uh, keep going here with this Chris and Massive Genius storyline, though. We get some very entertaining scenes as uh, we are introduced to Visiting Day. Oh, my lord. Formerly known as Defiler, the hairband. Um, Uh, I think we need to acknowledge, before we even get into what happens with Visiting Day, is the sound of Visiting Day, which they have just nailed that totally rinsed out post-grunge phase that was going on in, like, pop rock at the time, which was like, we squeezed every bit of juice we could out of, like, R.E.M. and Pearl Jam and all that stuff, and now this is just the remnants of that sound. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is sed- sediment that's, yeah. that's of music, as far as I'm concerned. Well, it, it you know, I looked for... I don't know who wrote this stuff. I mean, I guess it's Joe Basso and Frank Renzulli, if we're looking at... but Possibly, but... 
the people involved in the show very clearly know a thing or two about music. Sure. Because these fake songs are so spot on. The bullshit death metal of Defiler, uh, bad death metal. Not that death metal is bad, but this is bad heavy metal hairband bullshit. And Defiler, absolute, uh, not Defiler, excuse me, Visiting Day absolutely sucks. And yet yeah, they also... terrible. Yeah, but, but a hit is a hit. That fake song that they made for the show, uh, Such a Fool, that Hesh is listening to, was I'm like tapping my foot. I wanted more of it. And then they cut immediately to... Erase myself. Erase myself, which, God almighty, these guys suck. So you have to know a little something about music to make songs this deliberately awful. Like, whoever wrote these Visiting Day songs, hats off to you. Yeah. I do want to credit Chris here. Um, I think a lot of this is he's trying to do something for Adriana specifically. We do know, as per Tennessee Moltisanti, Chris wants to be a big man. Yeah. He wants to make it beyond his meager gangster life. Either he wants to be a major gangster, or he wants to be in the movies. He wants to yeah. be somebody. Um, he thinks this could be an avenue for him. Adriana says, look, Massive G, his company, they produce uh, movies as well. He thinks this could be an in for him. But he's also looking out for Adriana. There's some good stuff in this episode between Chris and Adriana in terms of how much they care for each other. Mm. Chris does not stick around to enjoy the prostitutes with Paulie and Tony earlier in the episode. He says, I'm going to go home to Adriana, mm. right? Later in the episode, you can see that he's really doing this for her. He's willing to look past that this guy, Richie Santini, is a guy that she previously had a sexual relationship with. Yeah. He's even looking past being aware the entire time that Massive G obviously wants to fuck Adriana. It's obvious in every scene that they yeah. have together. But you know what? Chris is going to look past it. He's going to dress her up, and he's gonna, they're, they're going to ride this out. They're going to see if they can do this. And at the uh, towards the end of the episode, when it's just kind of revealed that everyone thinks that Visiting Day fucking blows from the technician to Hesh to Silvio, he tries to let her down gently. Yeah. She has a, a really heartbreaking scene where she says, you know, you, you just don't think I'm talented. You don't think I'm I am deserving of this. You're just trying to control me. And Chris clams up. He goes silent. And she says, you know, that's always it with you. you you're either screaming your head off or you're dead. Mm. And he doesn't come back at her. He doesn't, you know, yell at her. He's just quiet. He actually tells her in the doorway, I love you. And she, she shoves him off. That scene is so difficult for Christopher, too, because I feel like it's something that... It's almost like he's saying it to himself. It's like the worst thing you could hear, that you're, you're not talented. Mm. You're not special. This thing that you thought was great isn't. And I've checked with all the people that know. And worse, it reveals that both of them don't really know what the hell they're doing in terms of reaching for the stars here and trying to produce hit music. Or, mm. you know, we can't ignore the fact that the lyrics in Visiting Day are just as bad, almost like equal level bad, to the words in the script that Christopher was writing in his screenplay. <laughs> right? Wow. Beautiful yeah. girl. I have to be loyal to my capo. Four exclamation points, right? Yeah. That's the same thing <laughs> as, you know, don't get in our way and don't be so gay. We're going to defile, defile you. Come on. <laughs> I think that's a great way to frame it. And I think, again, the, the Gatsby-esque quality of reinvention comes up here because Chris is seeing these other, the gangster rappers in a new light that's a corollary to him, but he sees it as different and he certainly wants to, as Jordan mentioned, bring Adriana along, dress her up. Again, the love is an extension of myself and my power. And But the terms of the reinvention are either not what you want or you can't really shed the past. As I think um, D'Angelo says in The Wire of The Great Gatsby, it doesn't matter. 
that some fool says he's different. You can change the name of Defiler to Visiting Day all you want. They still suck. They're still Defiler. They're still Defiler. Yeah. Right. They still yeah. say Defiler. The core the of the band is still there. Right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the core with the Yeah, like they're John and Paul. Yeah. Right, right. Um, and Chris, though wanting to reinvent himself in this music trade, I think at the end comes back to, mostly because of Hesh, a shrewd gangsterism hmm. of simplicity, some clarity, and that this is a business. And the sad thing for me at the end of that scene, as Jordan pointed out, is not quite that Christopher is lying when he says he loves her. I don't yeah. think that he is. I think it might be hard for him to quite understand what love is, but that Adriana's line, that is such a lie, characterizes what their lives are actually like. And that whatever their relationship is from now on, it will be marked by this kind of distrust. Yeah. Well, you can tell as much as there is absolutely, to, to Jordan's point earlier, there's absolutely genuine affection and, and care between these two. You can also tell there is an undercurrent of tumult and, and a little bit of uh, toxicity there. There's something... Th- these two have a volatile... You can tell they fight a lot. Absolutely. You know I, I think mean? some of that comes from also their age. Yeah. These are younger characters as well. Yeah. So we've mentioned uh, several times here, um, I just want to bring this up, the humor that Frank Renzoli uh, episodes tend to inject into the show. I have to just mention quickly, guys, this studio scene with Chris and uh, Visiting Day is one of the funniest scenes maybe in all of The Sopranos. Uh, <laughs> it, it's just there's so many great laugh lines here. Oh, yeah, God. From the moment we cut into the scene on just the, the ashtray overflowing with cigarette butts and the, de- and the depressed face on uh, the engineer... We just kind of immediately see how long this has been going on and how miserable everybody is. And that project that shoots us right into the meat of the scene, which is Chris trying to get these guys to keep recording and to finally get it right. One of my favorite lines in this whole episode is, I think, when Chris says to Richie, for all the dynamic energy in these songs, we ought, we ought to get another down power line in here for you to suck on. <laughs> what a funny character trait, too, that this guy... He was cooking a trout with he, a down power yeah, line, Yeah, just right? these crazy hairband dudes, and he <laughs> decides to cook a trout on a down power line, and it changed him. It made him more introspective. Oh, my lord. Yeah, I fucking hate these douchebags. Actually, um, it's a really horrible moment when you find out that uh, Richie is a recovering a drug addict, and Christopher is telling him to go into the bathroom and, you know... I just just take these drugs and I just what a horrible thing but it's so funny it's played for laughs in that moment and I think it's really effective well you know we touched on something interesting here though uh what is it about Adriana that's drawn to these kind of uh, look I think Chris is a much oh no cooler, he's a loser too he's much better than Richie but like what is it with her she's gorgeous she's smart why is she drawn to these losers she's Chris I'm gonna, I'm gonna say this maybe I'll take some heat from listeners Adriana's not smart I don't think she's intelligent. I don't think she's a smart character. It's fair enough. Um, she's a good person sometimes, but I don't think she's smart. Perhaps most important here, to Jordan's point, is certainly that these characters aren't smart, but they don't realize how dim they are. That Both Adriana and Christopher think that they're ready for this. And this is something in this scene in particular... I wrote this down. I don't know why this was the case. I understand it's a, it is a very funny scene. I'm not saying that I didn't find it hilarious. But I was infuriated with both of these characters. Because <laughs> what they are doing... Uh, visiting Day, of course, sucks. But 
<laughs> this guy Squid, of course, knows what he's doing. He knows the dynamics of this. He knows how it generally works, day in, day out. He sees people record, and he understands how it works. Chris and Adriana want to just make it happen any way that they can, mm. and they Adriana's calling on expertise that she doesn't have. Chris is calling upon authority to see if he can just make this happen to the point where, as Jordan just said, he's saying to this guy in AA, go shoot the crank. <laughs> and to me, that really... It's a key frustrating element. I think it might have been episode five when we discuss Tony and culture and, like, say, the liberal arts and the humanities, Jordan was mentioning, is there something that is keeping these characters from moving forward, branching out, changing their lives because of a lack of appreciation for these aspects of culture? And in this scene in particular, it's not just that they don't get music. They don't seem to be too interested in learning. They seem to only be interested in working this situation to the advantage of their status financially and in terms of public yeah. knowledge mm. i love chris's line kinkos buddy this is costing <laughs> me 300 bucks an hour <laughs> yeah oh and then chris fucking you know breaks the guitar over his back and then says uh, record with the ukulele <laughs> <laughs> just very funny stuff uh and oh i love that moment when squid finally explodes because what i love about squid is we see in that first shot i mentioned he's very frustrated they've been at this for days and he really tries to not pass judgment on the music he's recording. He probably just came with the studio. And he he, he he really is diplomatic with Chris and Adriana at the end of what is a very frustrating session. And says, no, I think we're all trying here. It's just, uh, you know, we're kind of at a wall. Let's go get some rest is kind of the basic gist of it. And then when Richie just shits on the way that the, the band was mic'd, he just is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Your songs have no choruses. <laughs> just yeah. really funny stuff. He brings up the Beatles. And, and you he's know, entirely right. Yeah, Adriana has brought up in the past that, um, you know, Vito and Richie are at the core of the band, but the rhythm section has left. So, yeah, of course the choruses are fucking gone. This is typically what happens between a singer and just the guitarist, where it's just your own egos feeding the band <laughs> until it's just drivel. And that's what Visiting Day is. It's drivel. Yeah. Very interesting episode for Hesh here, too. Uh, you know, uh, uh, look, I have no doubt that Hesh took more money off of these young black musicians back in the day than perhaps he should have. But Hesh is no Hesh is no dummy. You know, he really knows what he's talking about in this scene where he has to tell Chris. And, uh, another, th there's a lot of scenes where people kind of get the, in this episode, where people get the news broken to them that... Uh, well, you know, this isn't good. <laughs> this isn't working out. Hesh, is, he tells Chris, a hit is a hit, and this is not a hit. It's just something you can't possibly comprehend or codify. And then later in the episode, Chris is sitting there listening to the song Nobody Loves Me But You by Dory Hartley, which is not a financially successful hit in the classic sense, but it's good. It's a very good song. It's a very catchy song. It has a certain something to it. So when Hesh says a hit is a hit, he's not talking about money. Massive Genius is always talking about money. I like anything that turns shit green. Hesh is talking about quality. So that clues us in that Hesh is no dummy when it comes to this stuff. He knows what a hit is. He knows something good. And that's a skill that we also see that Adriana doesn't seem to have. Yeah, and nor Chris. Um, I do want to bring this up because I thought it was interesting in the episode. Massive G uses the word reparations yes. um, to be repaid this money that he is going to give off to the only remaining survivor of, of Jimmy, the young black singer that uh, Hesh seems to have taken advantage of. Obviously, that word is charged. 
Um, that's a, a charged word in our society where, you know, uh, black folks are still seeking reparations for work that was done by their forebears when they were enslaved. Uh, mm -hmm. So that word is used deliberately as um, something to attach even greater meaning to what has gone down in that situation between Hesh and Jimmy. We get a great scene with just Hesh where he is listening to Jimmy's song. Um, the song that I think is titled, uh, you know, I, why am I such a fool? Yeah. And I, Hesh seems to have a, an expression of regret on his face that maybe he did admire this young man and his talent and that he did really wrong him in some way. I'm wondering why Hesh ultimately doesn't decide to pay the money. I know that it is a shakedown. I actually, I think it, it is. I just mean to say the number of $400,000, while that's a, a huge number for most people, I think Hesh has $400,000. I think he's, I don't think this is a hard no for Hesh. I think he's really considering it. Oh, he it. absolutely considers it. Uh, he doesn't say no at the sit down. If he was, if, if it that were, somebody came to Tony Soprano with that, Tony would have been like, fuck you, get out of here. And said no, Hesh does give it legitimate consideration. Do we think there's anything to that the characters that were taken advantage of, both the young black man named Jimmy and also Jimmy Smash, are both named the same name in this mm. episode? This um, was the first time that I made anything like that connection was watching it this time. I said, are these these two characters, these kind of put-upon figures mm. in the backstories of uh, Hesh and Tony, respectively? I, I mean, I, I don't have anything concrete, but I did think there was something to that. These are gangsters here, and despite Tony learning his lesson and knowing how Jimmy felt, and I think Hesh, being a Jew, has some part of him that connects a little bit with what Massive is saying. I mean, obviously he has to posture and, and is accepts it for the shakedown that it is in some level, but he's also giving it serious consideration, and I think Tony, while learning his lesson still mocks Jimmy. Like, the last line of that scene is still kind of <laughs> laughing at Jimmy's expense. He's serving a 20-year stint for robbery. It makes fun of the way he talks. I think, ultimately, <laughs> Hesh... We're dealing with gangsters here. Hesh is just not willing to go there. And, and, you know, I think much in the same way, it's like, yeah, we get it, but we're projecting here, and, and, and I'm not going to give it up. And not only am I not going to give it up, but I'll countersue you, because, you know, music business hasn't changed very much. You stole... Right, you sample the track, sample. yeah. Yeah, right. exactly. That scene is really fun, by the way. I really like that scene where he threatens a lawsuit. Paulie is fucking geared up in bulletproof. He's ready to go. If that phone call goes sour, Paulie is ready to fucking go out there, and it's just crazy. Um, I want to pick up where Jordan did with that. Yeah. I also loved that scene with Hesh. No dialogue. Nothing. Yeah. Just him, little brown liquor, the pictures, and his face has to tell that story. And for me... There's a very important trajectory here with Hesh, because Hesh is a ganif. He's a thief and a liar like the rest of them. I think he's better at it than certainly Chris is in this sequence. And Well, he's not violent and he's more likable. <laughs> sure. He's, yeah. he's clever. He's shrewd. He's, as Jordan said in, uh, I think, Pax Soprano, he's the wizard of the realm. I really like that. He is, yeah. And I yeah. wanted to pick up on that very image, because when we recorded that and Jordan said that, I said, that is something. That's going to stay with me. And sure enough... To me, in this episode, the trajectory of Chris growing up a little bit in the gangster world, the metric for that is whether or not you're going to listen to Hesh, or you're going to bullshit him with this emotional resentment. You're only angry because I went against you at that sit-down, hmm. which is like, no, dude, he knows this shit. You have to listen to him. You really got to listen because you don't know shit, and you're, you're in way over your head, and probably deeper in your pocketbook than you're willing to go. In that scene, the first scene where they're looking at the horses, 
there's a great construction there where they're talking about it. That's when Massive uses the reparations term. Tony, in fact, says to Hesh, this will show you how much respect the Wizard of the Realm is given. What do you want to do here, Hesh? I'm guided by you. It's at that moment when Chris, fucking genius that he is, speaks out of turn. And Polly says, oh, but did you guys notice Hesh in that scene is afforded all the rights of a gangster. He's not one of us. He's not part of our thing. But he is afforded those rights because Chris doesn't get to talk here. He not only gets to correct Chris, he gets to dress him down. Let's get some cool fucking fizzy water on your head. Yeah. So I loved that strain with Hesh. And as far Hesh to me, absolutely, I'm sure, fucked these guys over. I mean, we, we got a direct reference to that in episode six. Right. For me, when Hesh is looking at those pictures, all those pictures is Hesh with young, beautiful black women that he's looking at on the wall. And I thought, when I watched this episode, Hesh is making the decision to remember himself a certain way and not remember certain other things. And that's how I read it. And in terms of the stuff with Massive, even if Massive is technically right, I think in some of the things that he says, the line about that do wackadoo wackadoo I'm so blue does that spring from your experience or the little brothers that's signaling to Hesh that we have you dead to rights on the fact that you did not co-write these songs Mm -hmm. but Hesh is right I think when he says to Massive that this is about an altruistic moment that is about building your brand and you're not going to have it with me I'm not going to be your schmuck for that so Mm. I think the the scene it's a great read Paul it is Paul really um I think the the scene landed for me because I think it, it was made more interesting by the fact that I think I would have done something different. I actually, I think I would have paid him the money, mm. but I can acknowledge as a viewer that I understand why Hesh doesn't. I don't think he thinks that money is going to really do anything for Jimmy, who's gone. Mm. Uh, it's going to go to this distant relative of, of Massive G's. It might even just go to Massive G himself. Ultimately, it will, pro- it will propel Massive G forward. It's not going to really do anything for anyone else. Um, But I think I would have paid the money, to be honest with you. It's clearly something that is bothering Hesh. He's wrestling with his conscience in that moment. And, um, yeah, I don't know. It was interesting. It might have been the most interesting moment for me in the episode. A couple last little things, and then we'll wrap this up here. Um, I wanted to ask you guys, I don't know if any of you... I, I am, when it comes to stocks and Wall Street, I'm financially illiterate. But we have this subplot of a subplot where Carmela takes an investment... Uh, in, um, what is it? Somebody mentioned it earlier. American Biotics. American Biotics. And then the stock splits three to one. I admit I have no fucking idea what that means. What does it mean when a stock splits? Was that good for Carmella or was that bad? So I think the headline on the finance piece that she's reading in the paper, it says, um, uh, it says American Biotics two mescent splits three to one. (laughs) That's funny because of the two mescent is a word for hard and engorged, isn't it? Yeah, I don't actually know what it means. Was this a good thing or a bad thing that she read? Do I think know? it's a good thing because who, who comes into that? Meadow. So, Meadow. And, and she comments takes that, the wind out of the She shows. comments that she's... And she like, says they're going to go to the spa. Yeah, right? you're, you're so, in a good mood today, right? So let's take it that's a good thing. Maybe the stock is engorged in some way. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I, I think it's good. If I had to like lay down money, I think it's good. But I admit I have... My financial literacy in the realm of Wall Street is, is just totally... I had no actual idea. I just had Yeah, to... there's a golf club white boy listening to this podcast right now that knows exactly what a fucking tumescent stock means when it splits three to one, and you're laughing your fucking ass off right now. Fuck you. <laughs> yeah, well, dude, fuck we you, can... but also email us and let us <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah, reach out at uh, thesopranospodcast at gmail.com and let us know if, if you're listening what the hell a split tumescent stock is. What I think what? we can infer that it's doing quite well if she's yeah. about to take her to an expensive spa day. I also think it's very funny. I, you know, I, look, I don't 
necessarily think that uh, they're making any sort of deeper comment here, but I love that Carmela in one sentence is like, women are better savers than men. It's like, sure, <laughs> Debute on me. Let's go spend $250 on facials. <laughs> yeah, probably way more than that, I yeah. think. Yeah. That's a great point. And I think for me, I don't know anything about stocks either. Maybe that gives us a good insight into where Carmela is because at the beginning in that scene at the Burger Basket, Adriana feared perhaps as what happened in Christopher's dream in Tennessee Moltisante, feared becoming Carmela. Mm. Go to the gym with your, pump out a couple of kids, go to the gym with your stretch marks, and what does that buy you? A husband who can't tell you where the money comes from. And sure enough, Carmela is trying and branching out like, like Tony and Chris are, but is operating with a husband who won't tell her very much at all. And I think she reaches the limit of that understanding, you know, Meadow saying, I don't know, Ma. Well, I do know, but she doesn't know. She's frustrated by how much she doesn't know. And then I think to soothe perhaps both of their frustrations, she says this spa day, which as Chris noted, ironically is now spending money that she doesn't have a hard grasp on because Tony won't tell her. Mm. And this, as you said, these are short scenes. A lot of them don't have much dialogue, but Edie Falco, I knew every beat what Carmelo was going through. Yeah. So it really worked for me. Yep. Uh, let's talk about the end here. I had a lot of fun <laughs> with this ending and the way that it, it plays out. Again, evoking gangster movie imagery. Kuzumano and the guys were talking about The Godfather and Casino. So Tony pulls uh, right out of Godfather 2, that classic scene where Clemenza throws Don Corleone, uh, played by Robert De Niro in part two, th- this bag of guns, like, just hold on to it for a while, you know. And he's definitely tapping into that. Uh, they have this hilarious scene out in the garden where he's raking and he calls them coos. And I love that little exchange. Hey, there's another connotation. Oh, no, not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and then hands him, you know, hold on to this. And, and uh, the, it's just, it's, it's very funny. The image of the Kuzumanos staring at the box, just like, what the fuck is this? What's in it? Is it, it could be a weapon, drugs, I don't know. Uh, don't open it. Yeah. <laughs> just very funny, very entertaining. Like, like we said, maybe this doesn't have grand import on the series proper, but it's a very fun, this is undeniably good shit, and it's something I didn't mind seeing. Uh, Tony fucking with, with Kuz after being kind of prodded and, mm-hmm. and poked uh, for their amusement this entire episode. Any... Any thoughts on this? And then any kind of final thoughts to tie the whole episode together before we wrap up here, guys? So that that scene uh, with with the box and all that, that also accompanies uh, Kuzumano telling Tony that he has not been admitted into the country club. It's like the the formal follow-up. You know, Tony asks, you know, what what happened with the whole golf club thing? Oh, I'm sorry, you know, uh, new members can't join, so old members die off. You know, you know how it is. And there's actually kind of like a grimness there because it's almost like, oh God, does that mean, will Tony kill someone to get into this club? Yeah. Uh, ultimately, of course, I think Kuzmano can even see that it, it's not an issue for Tony, that Tony has made his peace with not getting into the golf club. And I feel quite good for Tony in this moment. I think he reclaimed a little bit of his confidence that was lost in giving Kuzumano the box, almost as if this box, which is probably empty or just contains bullshit, actually contains something of emotional significance. It's almost like Tony saying, here, you can hold the emotional baggage of my suffering mm. of not getting into your little club, and you can suffer with the hatred, because I'm not carrying it. Mm. Yeah, I like that reading a lot, and uh, that imagery, as you said, kind of grim with the club membership feels oddly like mob membership, Yeah, right? No, we're not open in the books. No new members till old members die, but of course it's frivolous. David Milch, one of my favorite writers who did NYPD Blue and Deadwood, said really good stories often go out the door that they came in. 
And the first beat in this storyline is Tony giving Cusimano the box of Monte Cristos. Right, mm. right. And similarly, there was a bit of titillation and even some reticence about, oh, well, they're Cuban, they're illegal. But immediately that the gear turned into Cusimano's delight in proximity to this gangster stuff, even adopting Tony's language, but these motherfuckers were hard to come by, which Tony then picks up. Yeah, they fell off a truck and they laugh together. Yeah. Here, Tony, as Jordan pointed out, seems to take that emotional tension with the mystery box and give it to Cusimano, and now it's only the, the tension and the fear, which then leads into the last moment when, again, the, the call from across the house, again, like this Gatsby image, like these weird next-door neighbors, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, when Melfi was on the toilet and heard the scream and thought it was coming from Tony's house, her association with it seems to be the, the cordial doctor with a good bedside manner. It seemed to be somebody screaming in pain. Yeah. Tony's like, uh, no, I didn't hear that. Then we know that now it's Tony under the weight of the weightlifting, and the Cusimano's association with it is entirely different. Like, I don't want that to happen to me. And that's where they come. <laughs> yeah. Right. So. Yeah, and it, I think it's it's a funny, weird device, Tony's screaming, but in a way it kind of encapsulates what the whole episode is about because it's about the pain involved in improve, in changing your image and changing the way mm. you look. He's working out and he's exerting the screams of pain. And ultimately that's what a hit is a hit is about, is about the pain of transitioning into different social strata. I do want to say, this is such a superficial comment, but I've been noticing it for a few episodes now. Um, Actually, probably since Down Neck is when I first noticed. The Sopranos have a beautiful home, like one of the most gorgeous homes I've ever seen on television. Uh, I'd love to live there. Yeah, notably beautiful and like constant furniture updates and things like that. The basement is a totally unfinished kind of a wreck. It's not like notably a wreck, like it's not falling apart, but like... The boiler is visible. The there's the you know, exercise equipment. It's kind of I don't want to say dirty, but it's just it's very unfinished. It doesn't feel like a piece of Carmela's house. It almost feels like I don't know its own little sort of dirty realm underneath it, where Tony just kind of like lurks and he has a little television down there and just kind of watches and does what he wants. And uh, I took a moment to think, like you know, it's also a very male thing. I don't want to necessarily lend it a, a sinister vibe. Um, men often have like a little corner of their home that belongs to them because what's weird is that certainly in Tony's life this is true. Even though he has paid for the house and the house is his, the visible style in the house is Carmela. Hundred percent. You know, Tony's visual style is much more present in the Bada Bing or something like that. But the basement sort of looks like neither. Uh, is this maybe some kind of hint that? Tony's world isn't really his home, that that is really Carmela's world visually. It almost looks like he's out of place in his own house, except when he's in the basement. In the basement, I see Tony and I say, ah, there's a man in his element. Then he comes upstairs into this world of gold and white. Mm. uh, And, you know, this kind of classic idea of the homestead domain. And I say, wow, Tony's kind of out of place here. But when he's down in the basement kind of grunting and doing this labor of self-improvement, which we we know he'll use his muscles to brutal purpose... You know, that seems authentic to me, and I guess that is sort of sinister. And with that, a hit is a hit. We've got this one in the bag. Was it a hit to you? Let us know. Let us know on our social media, uh, at The Sopranos Podcast on Facebook, The uh, Sopranos Podcast on Twitter. Uh, Let us know what you think of a hit is a hit. Was it one that you liked? Was it a hit for you or not so much? Let us know. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. Thank you for joining us. See you next time for Nobody Knows Anything. Hey, 
If you like The Sopranos Podcast, please follow us on social media, at The Sopranos Podcast on Facebook, Sopranos Podcast on Twitter, and The Sopranos Podcast on Instagram. To email us, hit us up at thesopranospodcast at gmail.com. Please like and subscribe on iTunes and leave us a five-star review. If you don't want to leave a five-star review, don't leave any review. Thank you for listening to The Sopranos Podcast.